Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, from the Hilton Hotel in downtown Toronto. Welcome to today's event. For those of you just joining us through either our webcast or podcast, welcome to the meeting. A quick program note, for questions today, we'll be circulating collection car, uh, question cards from the audience. You'll find a few question cards on each table. Volunteers will come around to collect them uh, towards the end of the sit-down portion of the event. Jan will be, uh, the minister will speak, and then Jan will uh, be doing an interview with, with the minister. Today we present the Honorable Bill Morneau, Canada's Minister of Finance on the day of the federal budget, day after the federal budget. It isn't often that we have a joint meeting of the Empire Club of Canada, the Canadian Club, and the Toronto Board of Trade. But it's not the first time we've done this. It's only reserved for the most important events that, we have, that have happened throughout history. Uh, the first event I could find where this had happened is Wilfrid Laurier uh, in 1930 and Diefenbaker in 1956. Clearly, Mr. Morneau, you're amongst good company. And this event today marks the fourth budget delivered in the House of Commons yesterday. It's not lost on anyone that there is a budget uh, of how extremely important this budget is because it's the budget before the upcoming election. As we know from yesterday's budget, Minister Barneau is focused on many important themes such as women's entrepreneurship and workplace equity, future skills development, housing affordability, and the role of science in the economy. And when you think of Minister Morneau's work prior to becoming a minister, whether at Morneau Chappelle, a firm that he grew from 200 employees to 4,000, the largest firm of any kind in Canada, or his volunteer and charity work prior at Covenant House, at St. Mike's Hospital, the budget seems like a continuation of the path he embarked on many years ago, a journey to improve the lives of everyday Canadians. He is the Member of Parliament for Toronto Centre, an accomplished business leader. As Minister, he has played a key role in shaping government policy and initiatives, including the introduction of the, child ta uh, the Canada Child Benefit, tax cuts for the middle class and small businesses, and the negotiation of an enhanced Canada Pension Plan. As I mentioned, between 1990 and 2015, he ran a human resources firm, Warner Chappelle, through a period of transformational growth. As a community leader, he has worked to support the arts, help at youth, at-risk youth, and improve access to health care and education. Over a period of 20 years, he has sat on many boards. Internationally, he founded a school for Somali and Sudanese girls in Kakuma refugee camp, a UN camp in northern Kenya. He has co-authored a book, The Real Retirement, and previously served as pension investment advisor to the Ontario government. He holds a BA from Western University Western University, we should give a round of applause for Western University. And an MSc from the London School of Economics. Any London School of Economics people here? There we go, down here. Minister Bruno will be interviewed today by Jan De Silva. Jan is an experienced international business executive with a track record for excelling in on-the-ground leadership roles. As President and CEO of the Toronto Region Board of Trade, She's spearing efforts to make Toronto one of the most comp competitive and sought-after business regions in the world. Prior to joining the board, Jan spent 14 years in leadership roles in Asia. She served as CEO of Sunlace Financial Hong Kong subsidiary and mainland China's, China's joint venture. She co-founded and was CEO of Retail China Limited, which was acquired in 2010. She later served as the dean, and Ivy, dean of Ivy Asia 
leading the Hong Kong campus in Asia operations of Ivy Business School of Western University. She's been named Canada's top 100 most powerful women, a women of our time by Hong Kong South China Morning Post, and made the Canadian Board of Diversity Council's inaugural Diversity 50 list. I would now like to invite Canada's Minister of Finance, Bill Morneau, to the stage for some initial remarks, and then he will be joined by Jan later. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, the Honourable Bill Morneau. Thank you so much for being here. Good luck. Well, good morning. I'd like to start by thanking you, Kent, for that uh, voluminous introduction and uh, for the shout-out from whoever went to Western. Yeah, there you go. It's great to be here this morning. I'd like to thank the uh, Canadian Club, the uh, Toronto Region Board of Trade, and the Empire Club for hosting this breakfast this morning. It's great to see so many people coming out to hear about what the federal government is trying to do on behalf of all Canadians. And I'm looking forward to having a question and answer period uh, after. So to the extent you have uh, burning questions that you think will uh, be able to be answered this morning and uh, done in a way that has a little less noise than the House of Commons, I'm uh, delighted to answer those questions. It's my fourth budget as the Minister of Finance for Canada. And um, what I can tell you is that if any of you were surprised by anything that we announced yesterday, I think you probably haven't been watching us for the last four years. We took a look at what was going on in Canada in 2015, and we came out to Canadians and said that what we believed we needed to do in order to deal with stubbornly high unemployment, in order to deal with lower rates of growth than we should expect in a country as great as Canada. We said that we needed to make investments in middle-class Canadians. We needed to make investments to deal with people's worries about the future and ensure that people are able to do better so that our economy can do better. That was the starting point four years ago, and I think as you'll hear me talk today, you'll see that that continues to be what animates us as we think about how this country should move forward. But to set the frame for the uh, budget yesterday, I'd like to step back and just identify the context. All of you I know are watching what's going on around the world. We're seeing a raucous debate in the United Kingdom, people questioning the benefits of immigration and the benefits of trade and tearing their country apart. We're seeing enormous challenges in France where the Gilets jaunes are questioning the nature of their economic success and how that success goes to the broader population in that country. We're seeing a brand of divisive politics in the United States where people are increasingly finding it difficult to find common ground and talk to each other about what they think is the important things that the United States should be doing for the future. This is the backdrop that we find ourselves in. And unfortunately, this discussion is not getting at the root issues, the root challenges that we're seeing in our economy. I'll tell you what I worry about. I worry about that brand of populism and anxiety, but I really worry about issues that are facing everyday Canadians. High household debt, people's concerns that the next generation won't be able to do as well as the generation that's doing well today. Worries that people won't be able to get into the house, they won't be able to have the same sort of success that their parents or their grandparents might have had as this country grew. That's the context for our budget, 
And it's not really that much of a different context from what we saw in 2015, except for one important point. We are doing much better as a country today than we were just three and a half years ago. If we think about the measures that we put in place, If we think about the measures that we put in place early on in our mandate, the expansion of the Canada Child Benefit, the changes we put in place with the Canada Workers Benefit, we've seen some material changes in how Canadians are faring just three and a half years later. We've created together 900,000 new jobs in this country. We have, just to put it in context, literally the lowest unemployment rates we've seen in my lifetime. It's really a strong starting point for the next things that we want to do for our country. Now, we've also taken real efforts to make sure that those people in our country that haven't been doing well have the possibility of doing better. One of the things I'm proudest about over the last three and a half years is the combination of the Canada Child Benefit, the Canada Workers Benefit, which gives people trying to get into work the opportunity to earn more as they move from social assistance into work, and the increase in the guaranteed income supplement means that in just three and a half years, we've raised 825,000 Canadians out of poverty. So when you have a demographic challenge, when you realize you're facing issues that are enormously problematic because we have more people over the age of 65 than under the age of 15, getting more people actively at work, finding a way to raise people into the possibility of greater success for their family, that's critically important for them and it's critically important for everybody in this room as well. So that's the starting point of our budget, Budget 2019. As much as I'd like to think that the best unemployment numbers that we've seen in more than a generation and that the lowest poverty rates in a generation should mean that everyone in this room and across the country is no longer worrying about the future, it's just not the case. People are very anxious about what they're seeing. The world around us is moving faster than it's ever moved before. We know that the pace of job change is, if anything, accelerating. The budget we put forth this year is trying to address that very real challenge. One of the things that I think will have a lasting and important impact on how people pursue their careers in this country is something we introduced yesterday. It's called the Canada Training Benefit. What we realize people need to see is the possibility that they can get the skills and the training they need to be successful in their current jobs and to consider what their next step might be in their lives. But it's difficult. It's hard to take time off work. It's hard to support your family if you're not working. And for many people, it's hard to actually find the money to have that training course. So what we've put in place is an approach that allows people every four years, four weeks off. It allows them to go on the EI system so they can get 55% of the average wage while they're off. It allows them to get a $250 tax credit each year, $1,000 every four years, up to $5,000 over a lifetime to fund their training. What I think is going to happen is that people are going to seek to find ways that they can constantly improve themselves. We already have a great situation in terms of an educated workforce in our country. We have among the highest rates of post-secondary education in the OECD, but we need to be ready for the changes that are coming at this, and we're trying to prepare Canadians to be ready. We also look at our housing market, and you'll know, many of you in this room, that we've done an awful lot in housing over the last three and a half years. 
one of the first things I did as your finance minister was put in place some rules that did make it a little bit more difficult to get mortgages because we saw that there was an increasingly an increase in prices that was unsustainable. Those efforts have in fact stabilized our market, especially in places like Toronto and Vancouver. We've also put in place approaches to ensure that we have increased housing supply, especially in affordable housing. But even with all that, we know that there is a real challenge for people, middle-class Canadians, to get into their first home. So we had to look at how we could do this in a way that didn't actually cause challenges with market stability. We've come up with a first-time home buyer incentive that means that for families that can't quite get into that first job, they're going to be able to get a shared equity mortgage with the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, meaning that if they do that, and it's up to 10% of the value of the home, up to 480000 they will be able to pass off some of those mortgage costs to the CMHC, lowering their monthly mortgage costs. What do we aspire to here? We have about 100,000 Canadians each year that are first-time homebuyers. We think that this measure might increase the number of people who are able to get into a first-time homebuyer by as much as 40%, taking it from 100,000 families that can get into that first home to maybe up to 140,000 families on an annual basis. A significant and important benefit for people who want to see that they actually have the possibility for that dream for them and their families. So we didn't stop there. There's other things that we've moved forward on, things that are in a continuum of what we've worked on over the last number of years. We recognize that helping students to be optimistic is critically important. Having the possibility of a home and having the training benefit down the road, those are important. But many students are burdened with high debt loads. So we took a look at the amount that we are charging as a federal government for debt for student loans, and we realized that we could lower that to the prime lending rate. And that means that for students, and there's about a million people in this country that have that debt, they will pay on average $2,000 less in those debt charges over the course of their life. 200,000 more people each year come out of those institutions with that debt. We're going to give them a more optimistic future that they can face up to the challenges that they will have in their working career. We've looked at seniors and we've said we've made a lot of progress with seniors, but we want seniors, if they're going to work, to continue to be able to put more money back in their pocket. So we gave them a higher earnings exemption so as they are on OAS and GIS, they can still actually do some work if they choose and keep more of that money for themselves. And importantly, we looked around the country and we realized that in a place like Toronto, everyone is part of the new digital economy. But that's not the case around our country. We know that in rural communities and places that are in the farthest reaches of our country, many people still don't have access to high-speed internet, yet alone actually have high-speed internet. So we put in place a plan, a plan that's working together with business to increase the amount of funding we put into high-speed internet. It's going to make a difference in the short term. The accelerated investment incentive we put in the fall economic statement means that private sector actors like Bell and TELUS, and Rogers, and others, are actually put more money into high-speed internet in rural areas. And on top of that, we're going to use the Canada Infrastructure Bank to crowd in more private sector money so that everyone across our country can have access to high-speed internet by 2030. This is an important measure that will mean that Canada will be at the forefront of the world as we face up to the reality of a digital economy. Now, I know because I'm in front of a business audience that some of you are asking, well, how are we going to pay for all of this? 
And I think that's an important question. We, as you know, back in 2015, said that we thought the first and most important thing was to make sure that we invested in middle-class Canadians. And that investment, those investments, have made a really big difference in terms of our economic outcomes. I mentioned the ex excellent job report, but we also had really significant growth in 2017. We think that we will continue to be at the forefront of G7 growth in the years to come. What we do know is that we also are blessed with a very strong balance sheet. Our debt as a function of our overall economy is the lowest among G7 countries. We've been able to reduce it each and every year we've been in office. You'll see in my fiscal track that was announced yesterday that we've committed to continuing to reduce that debt as a function of our economy over time so that we can be resilient in the face of any challenges we might face in the economy in the future. We also have a commitment to reduce the deficit as a function of our economy, as we've done each and every year. So essentially the debate, the debate is, should we have a measured and appropriate way of reducing our debt and reducing our deficit over time, or should we take an approach favored, I'll admit by some people who sit across from me in a very loud way in the House of Commons, and do it really rapidly to get rid of the debt or the deficit in a really fast pace so that we actually cause ourselves to be in a more difficult economic position by doing that more rapidly than we should do for an economy that's performing as well as Canada. You've seen our decision. Our decision is to invest in Canadians, to invest in middle-class Canadians, to give them the skills that they need, to give them the optimism for the future. And that confidence, we know, is going to allow us to continue on the great success story that is Canada. So thank you very much for being here this morning, and if you have any really softball questions, I'm happy to answer them. <laughs> Thanks very much. Well, good morning, Minister. Great to have you here. I want to echo what Kent said. It's just a pleasure to be working with Andrew and Kent in our three organizations. We share many of the same members, so it makes a lot of sense to just bring us all together in the same room. Um, I'm amazed. I've got notes, and you didn't have a single note. So this is very near and dear and, and close to the work that you've been doing. It's worse for me than that. Jan was sitting beside my wife, so she took notes. <laughs> I've got lots yeah, of notes, okay. lots and lots of notes. Um, well, for, the, for us as a business community, I mean, the budget that, that has been put forward is very much thinking about needs of Canada as a whole. Because we're here in Toronto and we've got a business audience, we'd like to do a little bit more of a deep dive to make sure we're understanding how this becomes a platform for business growth and job creation. And let me start by saying we are so, uh, we've got so much momentum in Toronto right now because of the last five, 10 years of an amazing innovation sector. I mean, the businesses that Andrew's built and others have built. I know Mayor Burbanovic from Kitchener's in the room, uh, part, of the, part of the amazing innovation corridor. And so elements of this budget really resonated for our innovators. The uh, availability of shred credits uh, coming towards them, the treatment of some of the um, stock options about not, not hindering what's happening in that innovation space, and the global talent visa, all critical enablers, so thanks so much for that. 
A big part of the budget was also about the anxiety that's facing middle-class Canada, and we really feel that as well. As our businesses are trying to figure out how they move uh, into new disruptive technologies, what does that mean for jobs of the future? So that's, uh, again, really, uh, really strong placement. Really, we applaud that kind of thinking, and I'd like to just recognize that thinking uh, from the minister. So a round of applause for those elements in particular. Now... With that, um, wanted to do a little bit more deep diving to understand or double-click through some of the points that you raised. As you did indicate, for businesses, professionals, students, there is concern about how do we keep our skills relevant. You outlined at a high level some of the plans that are in place, but how do you see that moving forward in terms of making sure people are getting access to the right skills at the right time? Well, this, uh, this is central to what we've talked about uh, in our budget. And I identified a few things that we've, we've put forth. Obviously, the Canada training benefit being the most significant. But let me step back and think about people at earlier stages of mm -hmm. their lives. So we've uh, said to ourselves that we need to make sure that at a young age that people have access to the kind of skills opportunities that they need. So we put funding in for things like coding as people uh, go through uh, elementary and uh, secondary school. In university, I talked about the reduction in uh, the debt charges that people have, but I didn't talk about a couple of other things that we've done. We've put in place a strategy around encouraging young people that find that this is the uh, opportunity that they seek to consider apprenticeships. So we've mm -hmm. put in place significant funding around uh, encouraging people to get into apprenticeships. I know there's some people here from Leuna who, uh, who came to me and talking about the need for more people in the skilled trades in a place like Toronto. One of the things that we've done that uh, many people in this room will recognize is critically important is we've, we've said that we want to work together with the business sector to think about how every student in this country, as they're going through post-secondary education, can have the opportunity for a co-op or work-integrated learning. So uh, we, the Business Higher Education Roundtable uh, and the, the work that, uh, that David Mackay from mm -hmm. Royal Bank of Canada and Ann Sato from George Brown College and now Merrick Gertler from U of T have put forward is suggesting that we can actually get to a work-integrated learning opportunity for every single Canadian that wants it if we put in the right amount of funding. We put in the right amount of funding. What does that mean? With what we put in, we think that we've got 84,000 new spots for co-ops and work-integrated learning from here to 2022, 2023. And that means that we think the demand is about 150,000 spots. We'll actually be able to entirely fill that demand. So that is a really important building block as people prepare themselves to get into the workforce. And of course, what we've done is we've said once you're in the workforce, the idea that you can have that Canada training benefit for the refreshment of your skills is, is critically important. All of us in this room know that the, the life cycle for the skills that we have, the new technologies, is not as long as it used to be. And that's going to help people to, to remain capable of addressing those challenges. Yeah, which is great. And I, I really appreciate the focus as well on uh, highly skilled trades. I know Leuna, as you mentioned, are in the room um, with some of the infrastructure funding that we've been advocating for and which your government's been very forthcoming in terms of trying to bring into our communities to correct housing and transit supply. Um, we've got a huge shortage of uh, folks coming through the trades. So our ability to work alongside your programs and make sure that there's stronger pathways 
for kids to get into those programs, I think will serve us all well. I think just in the Toronto region, about 146,000 jobs are being created over the next decade by the infrastructure funding that's been committed here. Um, 127,000 of those are net new jobs, so it really is incumbent on us to help move folks into those opportunities. Um, Deloitte and the Business Council of Canada recently released a scorecard measuring our global competitiveness. It showed that 55% of our leaders are very concerned about the competitiveness of our business environment, citing taxation and regulation as among the biggest barriers. What measures do you anticipate on regulations? You refer to that in the budget. What do you see happening in that regard? We, uh, of course, we, we, we hear this and we're listening to this mm -hmm. issue. Um, those are two separate issues, obviously, no, taxation great. and regulation. So on the taxation front, uh, we, we did, as I mentioned, uh, we moved forward with the accelerated ability to accelerate uh, capital cost uh, depreciation in our fall economic mm -hmm. statement. That was a, uh, an important measure that allows people to invest quickly to create jobs. It also ensures that we're more than competitive with the United States. So on the next investment for a Canadian company, uh, there's about a 5% advantage for that next investment in Canada versus the United States. Our actual tax rates uh, are in a competitive zone. We're at about 27%. The United States is at about 26% in terms of uh, federal and, uh, and either provincial or state, depending on the country. And of course, in the small business sector, we're very competitive, we're much lower. Our, our uh, small business tax rates are lower than any other country in the G7, including the United States. From a regulatory standpoint, though, there's, there's absolutely more to do. The, the biggest thing I hear as I go around the country in the regulatory front is obviously getting big projects built. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a, a big and legitimate concern that we, you know, for example, with pipelines, that we cannot get a pipeline built to get our resources to international markets. So uh, you know that we took an historic decision around the Trans Mountain Pipeline to, to purchase that pipeline. We're going through that process right now and going through the consultations. And we, we want to get this done, but we need to get it done in the right way so that we actually have a demonstrated approach to getting a project like that done. In the budget specifically, we addressed some regulatory areas. We addressed uh, the agricultural sector, we addressed the health sector, and we addressed the transportation sector, where we know that those are the places where business leaders have said, these are big places where there are challenges. We've put funding in so that we can actually try and get at those, those challenges. We're working with business to identify the specific regulatory barriers. Uh, we always have to think about health and safety, of course. Mm -hmm but we don't want to have regulations that don't make sense. I think uh, there was some applause for what we did in the fall economic statement, and now I think people are going to watch carefully to make sure we deliver. I will tell you that our intent is to deliver. Mm -hmm. And I know we've had an opportunity to meet with you. We're part of um, the eight large cities in Canada. The boards of trade are working together uh, through the Canadian Global Cities Council. One of the things we've also been trying to advocate both um, in Ottawa but also across the provinces is just harmonizing interprovincial um, regulations. That's also a huge pain point for helping our businesses scale up here as well. But I know that's not in no, scope but for... No, but it's, it's really... It's, we should just all acknowledge this is a tough challenge. I mean, Canada is a great country. We uh, were fortunate to live here. And there are some things that are challenges. Interprovincial mm -hmm. barriers are challenges. We, we all have to work together to get things done. In the transportation sector, for example, it's not sensible that there mm -hmm. are different trucking regulations as you go from one province to the other. But there's, uh, there's important 
things that have developed over time that we need to break down. So I'd ask everybody in this room, in your day-to-day -day life, in your business life, to be an advocate for breaking down barriers that don't make sense. That's the most problematic uh, mm -hmm. issue for us, is getting those barriers broken down. We're here to help with that for sure. Um, now you're a downtown Toronto MP, and we're with a downtown uh, business audience. Um, this is one of the most successful job creation centers in the country with the momentum that we presently have. But with this success, it's come at a price. Housing has been really a struggle. Our young professionals in particular, fresh university grads. I met an amazing um, a student who's just graduating out of Ivy Business School who's going to be working at Bain. He can afford $1,000 a month to pay for an apartment in Toronto, can't find anything as he's trying to get to work. So get into the workforce. I know there's a huge focus with this uh, sharing equity incentive, but what what other advice would you have or what other thoughts would you have for some of our young professionals that are just struggling to get into the housing market in a starting point, even in the rental side of things? I think um, lots of people in this room are parents and, uh, and recognize how big this challenge is for the next generation. Mm -hmm. uh, the things that we can do as a federal government, we're, we're working on. We've, mm -hmm. we've uh, put in place significant funding for more rental uh, construction across the country. In this budget, if you take a look at it, we put in place additional funding, a $10 billion additional funding amount for rental construction financing across our country. We see that as critically important for dealing with supply. We also, I know there's at least one mayor here, we put in place a, a housing supply challenge for municipalities, a $300 million amount that municipalities are going to come to us and give us ideas on how they can expand mm -hmm. supply. Because really the issue in a city like Toronto is very much about supply. Absolutely. Uh, so that's what we're trying to do to encourage more, more actual building. Uh, obviously in a place like Toronto it will, it will come with debates about density. And uh, those are, those are going to make that uh, a challenge for sure. Uh, so we'll continue to be on this. We'll continue to think about supply. Even this idea, this shared equity mortgage that we put in place, what it means is people can, can put five or 10% of their house value with the CMHC, but it's only 5% if it's for a house that already exists. It's 10% mm -hmm. if it's new supply. So again, creating an incentive towards new supply. I think we need to keep uh, encouraging people at the municipal level, at the provincial level, to think about supply. That's uh, certainly, uh, that's what I'll be doing from my position. Okay, yeah, and we looked very carefully. I think there's some good opportunities. If you look at the average condo price, some of the programming that's been put in place with the CMHC program will make sense, but it's likely going to make sense outside of Toronto, which kind of connects to the next question. Transit continues to be a huge need that we have throughout the Toronto-Waterloo corridor, two-way all-day go, and, and other types of ways of moving people across, the, um, across this economic zone. Your government's done an amazing job of saying we're, go we're going to make infrastructure funding available. The Prime Minister was at our gala dinner in February, and we were having a fireside chat about how the dollars haven't flowed as quickly um, as, as we had hoped. I asked him what his thoughts were. He said, stay tuned for the budget. So with the budget, could you tell me, how are we going to help move these infrastructure dollars into market, into construction, into solving some of the trans transit gaps that we've got? I, I just have a huge sense of relief. Thank goodness I followed what I was supposed to do. And, yeah, and, there you go. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, Again, for those of you who, who've uh, 
not spent as much time on our budget as I have. Let me give you the detail of one of the things that we did yesterday. We've had some challenges in getting the commitment of infrastructure funding out in our country. We made a, a really significant commitment in 2015 that we would take what was then a $90 billion commitment over 10 years and make a $180 billion commitment to infrastructure over 10 years and also try to crowd in private sector money through the Canada Infrastructure Bank. So big commitments underpinning the need for us to have better uh, infrastructure, not only in our cities, but across the country. Uh, so that has been proceeding apace. This year, we've spent about $13.9 billion. That's the, I want to say this year, it's, it's the fiscal year, so up till the end of, of March 31st, uh, on that infrastructure. But it's not meeting up to everything that we wanted to get done. And that means that in places like Ontario and Saskatchewan and Man Manitoba and New Brunswick, we haven't been able to get the provinces fully on board with all the things we want to do. So yesterday we announced that we are putting an additional $2.2 billion into a municipal infrastructure top-up that's going out to municipalities across the country. It's in, a, in a, a frame that has been used before, the gas mm -hmm. tax, it's got a formula. And in Toronto, for example, and I spoke to John Tory the evening before the budget to tell him that that works out to about $150 million or so, a little more than that, I think, going to Toronto as an example. And I don't know the number for, for, uh, for other cities off the top of my head, but the point is it's going to make a material impact on cities' ability to get at infrastructure projects that they want to get at and do it in a, in a fashion that means we're moving forward quickly. Mm -hmm. We think it's the right thing for the long term. We also think it's the right thing for our economy at this moment in time. Okay, perfect. Um, one last question for me before I, I take some of the questions that have come in from the audience. In your opening remarks, you were talking about just the the global backdrop that we face right now and some of the challenges that are happening in, in other major markets. One thing that we wanted to reflect on, I mean, our three largest trading partners, the US, China, the UK, we're facing a lot of headwinds with, with each of those relationships right now. What, how did that influence some of the uh, forecasting that you did and how did that influence some of the choices that were made around this budget? Well, in terms of the forecast, I see Craig Wright here from RBC. Um, we don't actually uh, use our forecasts. We've, uh, as, a, as a continuing approach, the federal government uses private sector economists' forecasts. We use a large number of private sector economists in order to come up with what we think the economic indicators are going to be. So I'm presuming that Craig... Uh, in his forecast, and you know, Craig, you can uh, tell me whether or not you did this, considered the impact of uh, global trade on his forecasts. That's the way it's supposed to work. Okay. Um, so uh, what, what is clearly the case is that these are real issues, mm -hmm. that, the, that the current issue between the U.S. and China is, uh, is challenging. I know they're working uh, as, as well as they can to try and get to a, a better spot. I'm in pretty regular touch with uh, Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, who informs me that those discussions are going reasonably well, albeit challenging. Um, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward, hopefully, to a, uh, to a, a resolution to some of those uh, tariff barriers that we're seeing causing global impediments. With respect to the UK, uh, we will continue to uh, trade with the UK on a favored basis. Mm -hmm. uh, we're preparing for whatever eventuality comes out of the, uh, of the Brexit discussion. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that uh, we will continue to have a strong tie based on our historic uh, relationship. 
Um, and with the United States uh, directly, uh, USMCA, the new NAFTA, is uh, proceeding along the ratification process. We are in uh, discussions about the steel and aluminum tariffs, mm -hmm. and I'm you know, cautiously optimistic we'll get to a, uh, um, a solution there. It's, it's not, we're certainly not there yet, but we're having discussions that are proving to be fruitful. Um, so it is a challenging time. There's, there's no doubt about the fact that the, that the anxiety facing uh, people in major industrialized countries are resulting in uh, politics being fraught with more challenges, mm -hmm. that, that immigration looks, uh, looks different in different countries. Some people are, if they don't have a job, they're worried that, that people coming to their country will, uh, will take their job. We've got the great good fortune in Canada that we don't have that to nearly the same degree. Our immigration system is working well. New immigrants are doing very well in this country. I think broadly, we, em we embrace immigration. But those same factors around immigration are also impacting people's views around trade. And uh, we just need to keep working at uh, developing these relationships, which we've done. Mm -hmm. to, uh, to get us through this, this difficult time. Well, and I'd say the other thing we're focusing on even closer to home is what can we be doing about interprovincial trade? Because the ability for businesses in Canada to scale up in Canada, I think, is also a critical opportunity that we're just, just not missing. And, and we've had some discussions with Minister LeBlanc, and we'll continue to advocate at a provincial level for that. But that, uh, to me, is another big opportunity for us. Um, OK, question from the audience. Uh, let me just pick, there is one related to, okay. This is w with respect to high-speed internet in underserved and rural areas. Can you elaborate on the incentives that will be put in place to encourage more private sector participation in this regard? And that's about uh, high-speed internet in underserved and rural areas. So the way we've attacked this problem is we recognize that the, the economics for high-speed internet in different parts of the country are different. Mm -hmm. So uh, the first thing we did was we put in place the accelerated investment incentive, and that gives the business sector ability to invest more more rapidly. So we, we expect to see about a billion dollars of additional investment in high-speed internet from the key providers. Obviously, those are going to be in places where the economics for them are strong. And then uh, behind that, we, uh, we expect that the ability for the Canada Infrastructure Bank to put in place some funding and to crowd in private sector funding will be at the slightly less economic part because the Canada Infrastructure Bank can have some what they call concessional capital, so their return expectations are not the same as the major telcos. So they will, so we've got about a billion dollars on the first tranche and then we've got the second tranche with about a billion dollars from the infrastructure bank, plus we hope about another couple billion dollars crowded in from the private sector. So here we're at the three to four billion dollar investment uh, level. Then we expect that we will have uh, the CRTC has about 750 million dollars that can also be invested. And then underneath that, we've got government funding of about 1.7 billion dollars in those very hard to reach last mile places. And that includes an expectation that we're going to be able to use a new technology called low earth orbiting technology to make investments. There's a company called Telesat, for example, that's a, that's a world leader in this area where we might actually be able to get a less expensive way to get high speed internet to really hard to reach places. So it's a comprehensive plan using the private sector and public sector funding to get at an issue which we think is really important for every Canadian. Mm -hmm. Absolutely agree. Your budget puts significant focus and investment on reducing carbon emissions, especially in cities. 
thank you. What, uh, what do you need from us and what's in it for us? A question from the audience. Well, let me start by saying, and I know there's, there's certainly a lot of discussion about this, uh, we see that putting a price on pollution is the only responsible way for us to move forward. I know there's, there's provinces out there that are questioning whether that's a, an approach that makes sense, but we think that the idea that we can create the incentive towards new technologies that actually reduce our carbon footprint by putting a price on pollution is uh, eminently sensible. It's uh, an idea that's come out over, over years, mainly heralded by uh, right-of-center political parties for most of its iteration. And uh, we are going to take the step of taking every single dollar, every single dollar that comes to the federal government, if we're the backstop for this, and putting it back to people. So all of you are going to be doing your taxes soon. Sorry, that's part of the deal. Um, I, I love it when I go through Porter Airport. They, there's a sign there. My wife says to me, it says, um, you're retiring, but the tax man hasn't. And she always says, oh, that's you. Um, but, but, uh, but the point is, in your tax return this year, what you're going to do, what you're going to get is you're going to get that money back in advance. And you're going to get, like in Ontario, for a family, it's going to be about $307. And that equivalent, it's equivalent to, for at least 8 out of 10 Ontarians, what that price on pollution will actually result in. So you'll have a decision to make. You'll have a decision to make what you do with that $307. Do you, do you keep uh, doing what you're doing now, or do you do some sort of home retrofit so you actually spend less on, mm -hmm. on home heating? You know, and that'll be each and every person's uh, decision. But the economic argument is that the collectivity, you know, all of our decisions together will actually get us to a better place. And that's, that's what we're trying to achieve. It is not a novel idea in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, it's certainly the case that this is going to help us uh, with climate change, of course, but it's, it's even going to help us with things like getting pipelines built. I can tell you that, that getting pipelines to go to the United States right now, one of the impediments is the states that have to approve these pipelines going through their states are actually looking at our approach to climate change and asking whether we are actually meeting up to their expectations. So this is a real issue. Uh, we need to get on it and we're, we're just going to stay with it. Um, and we hope that uh, the people in this room, people across the country, will support our efforts to be a responsible country in the face of what is really devastating climate change around the mm -hmm. world. Yeah, and, I, and certainly you see the global move, move and I was, think it was a 14-year-old that started it now, just uh, trying to raise awareness on a, it's their future. Look, I just, uh, this is all the time I, I've got with you now, so hopefully that, uh, Nancy, thanks for the tips. I couldn't work it into the discussion, but maybe another time. But I just, uh, on behalf of the business community, want to thank you so much for coming, for sharing. I mean, you are clearly deeply into this, not a single note, uh, not a single note in front of you. And I just want to recall, I think it was four years ago, in this very room, when you were newly elected, our new finance minister, you were talking about the transition into the role and the amazing uh, bureaucrats that you're working with and all the big binders that they were pushing across the table at you. Clearly, you've got those memorized and down pat. I think there's a lot of things that are really good news for the business community, for Toronto, and for our middle class here uh, in the region. So thank you very much for all of the time uh, that you've put into this and all of the effort that you're putting in across the country on our behalf. A round of applause for our finance minister, please. Thank you. You can stay here. This won't, uh, this won't take too long. Um, first of all, uh, my name is Andrew Graham. I'm the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto, 
and uh, very pleased that we were able to host you, Minister, today in an environment that was probably less uh, noisy, at least, than what you'll, uh, you'll, you've had in the House of Commons. Um, on behalf of the Canadian Club, the Empire Club, and the Toronto Region Board of Trade, uh, really pleased that you uh, chose to come here and to our podium to share news of the budget so soon after uh, you delivered it. Um, I think two things struck me about your remarks. First of all, uh, your clear passion for the issues. I think you've got uh, a really great grasp and, and you clearly care a lot about what the environment is globally and what the environment is in Canada for, for, the, for families and individuals here. Um, and there's certainly lots in this budget for many, uh, many different Canadians uh, to, to think about and appreciate. And I think second of all, you've, you've, it's been mentioned now before, just the, the grasp of, um, of, of the budget and the issues that you have with you know, speaking without notes, really impressive. Um, you know, I sometimes speak without notes. If I don't know the budget, I'm in real trouble. <laughs> I was going to say, there is an easy way to speak without notes. It's just to get all the numbers wrong. That's, that's the approach that I take. But that's, you, it, it's very impressive to see um, uh, just the grasp you have. So, so thank you very much uh, for that. Jan, thank you as well for leading such a thoughtful conversation uh, with the minister. Really great to get you, the perspective that you brought about the, the, the region here, of course, and also issues uh, nationally. So thank you very much to you both. Just before we close, um, I just want to mention that as nonprofit organizations, the Canadian Club, the Empire Club, and the Toronto Region Board of Trade, we count on our sponsors and partners to help us further our missions uh, and each contribute to making uh, the city and the, the country stronger. Thank you very much to our sponsors again, BMO, Bruce Power, EY, Freeman, Intact, and Leuna. Thank you very much. And finally, a big thank you to the Hilton Hotel staff, MediaEvents.ca, Canada's online event space, and VVC for live streaming today's event. Merci and thank you, everyone. We hope to see you all again soon. Have a good day.